So good afternoon. We'll continue with the program now. My name is Kim Allen, um, and I'll be the moderator for this last section. So we've heard so far today about women scholars and also lay women and nuns, and this next series that we're hearing from two more scholars will be about enlightened women, moving on in the progression. <laughs> so our first speaker for this afternoon in this section is Meg Gowler. Meg began practicing Buddhism in 1968 as a disciple of the Zen master Shunru Suzuki Roshi and completed three years of monastic training. Later in life, Meg has been practicing in the Theravada tradition, and in 2011, Jack Cornfield authorized her as a Dharma teacher. She has been teaching meditation and leading retreats in both English and French in Switzerland, and also serves as a guest teacher here at IMC. Meg is currently in her second year of a master's program in Theravada studies at the Institute of Buddhist Studies and the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. Meg is humbled to be here today and delighted to contribute to exploring women's contributions to Buddhism, especially in honor of the venerable nuns of Aloka Vihara. So she'll be telling us today about um, poems of the women. Thank you, Kim. Uh, the subject of my presentation today is the Terigata, a collection in the Pali Canon of 73 poems attributed to the Buddha's female disciples. And she has already mentioned uh, a number of these, uh, one of which I'm going to talk about too. Um, the Terigata is thought to be unique as the only canonical text of one of the world's major religions attributed to women and focusing on their religious experiences and teachings. In fact, it seems to be the first anthology of women's literature in the world. The Teris of the Terigata are elder, enlightened nuns, and most of their poems are songs of their awakening. Some of these poems are composed primarily of stock phrases, but many are really vivid and original. They're inspiring testimonials of the truth of awakening. And as such, they hold out the promise that we too can be free. So what I'd like to share with you today is how the songs of these Terries, composed some 2,500 years ago, speak to us now in the 21st century. These nuns came from many different walks of life, and they all faced challenges of one kind or another. Some endured unimaginable suffering, but having been blessed like us in encountering the Dhamma, they all learned that through their own efforts how to overcome their suffering. And in these poems, they celebrate the joy they found in being free. Scholars tend to agree that these verses were uttered over a period of around uh, 300 years, from about the end of the 6th century to the end of the 3rd century BCE. And then they were memorized and transmitted orally for hundreds of years before being written down. And I feel a tremendous um, debt of gratitude to the long lineage of the Buddhist Sangha that these teachings have actually come down to us today. 
The first English translation was done in 1909 by Caroline Reese Davids, whom you heard about this morning from Dawn. And subsequent translations into English were made by K.R. Norman in 1971, by Susan Murcott in 1991, and there's a beautiful new translation that came out this year by Charles Hallisey, which is the one that I'll be reading to you from. One of the challenges in studying texts such as these is that the researcher who formulates the questions has always already in some way influenced the answers to their questions. So in order to address this difficulty, I've tried to clarify my own presuppositions and potential biases. First, as a fledgling Buddhist scholar coming from a very different social and educational context than the one in which these texts were composed. And second, as a Buddhist practitioner immersed in the teachings of Buddhism as it has evolved in the late 20th and early 21st centuries in the West. Fortunately, many of these poems are great poetry. And great poetry, even in translation, has a way of transcending history and, and culture. So as we know, the Pali Canon is by no means monolithic with respect to attitudes towards women. We find foundational suttas, such as the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, holding uh, not only nuns, but also laywomen in great esteem as bearers of the Dhamma, and we heard about this earlier, um, that the Buddha postponed uh, taking his parinirvana until all four assemblies, the nuns, the monks, the laywomen, and the laywomen, were able to preach the Dhamma and continue his teaching. Other scriptures are profoundly androcentric, androcentric and some are even misogynistic. So it's interesting to reflect on the significance of the poems of the Theragata in the increasingly patriarchal evolution of Theravadan Buddhism over the centuries, which sadly resulted in the order of nuns completely dying out. In order to elucidate what distinguishes the teaching voices of these early Buddhist nuns from their male counterparts, it's useful to compare the Therigata with the Theragata the companion volume of poems by and about the first male disciples of the Buddha. The verses from the elders from both of these anthologies provide models of success for women and men desirous of fully realizing the Buddha's teaching. And what's fascinating in comparing the two is that substantive differences do exist between the Buddha's female and male elder disciples in descriptions of their experience of awakening, as well as in their teaching styles. Although the texts are identical in form, structure, and style, they nonetheless exhibit consistent gender differences in their religious expressions. So without going into too much detail, I'll summarize for you what these differences are between the voices of the nuns and the voices of the monks. And then I'll go into more depth about how the poems of the Therigata might inspire us today as practitioners. So if one compares the relative word frequencies in the two anthologies, and here I'm drawing on Catherine Blackstone's uh, monograph, Women in the Footsteps of the Buddha, 
A number of striking differences between the texts begin to reveal a specifically feminine perspective of practice and of awakening. Perhaps the most significant difference is that the women poets are portrayed over three times more frequently as real people than the monks are. In many of the poems of the Terigata, we learn about who these nuns were before going forth as renunciants. They may have been beautiful princesses or prostitutes, frustrated wives, or bereft mothers. And in addition, many of the stories of the nuns' previous lifestyles are told in vivid detail, and they're filled with poignant accounts of their families, their grief, and their compassion. Another difference between the two anthologies is, is that the nuns are five times more likely than the monks to tell the story of their conversion to the monastic lifestyle. Now, this is a dramatic difference, and I think it points to how going forth into the homeless life may represent a more radical undertaking for women than it does for men. So if we look at the themes that distinguish these male and female voices of the early elders, first of all, we could say that the poems of the Buddha's women disciples tend to be more authoritative. The frequency with which the female authors of the Terigata actually speak about their own experiences of awakening is more than double that of the male authors. To give you an example, let me read to you the nun Dhamma's vivid account of her awakening. She says, Wandering about for alms, but weak, leaning on a stick with limbs shaking, I fell to the ground right there. And seeing the danger in the body, my heart was freed. The second, and to me the most telling difference between the poems of the early nuns and those of the monks, is the frequency of verses describing overt conflict. Whereas tales of conflict are virtually absent in the monks' poems, this stands out as a major theme for the nuns. Over a third of the poems in the Terigata tell stories of adversaries, like Mara, trying to tempt, to frighten, or to coerce the nuns into activities inimical to their liberation. So a unifying theme running through these texts is the Terry's emphasis on struggle in their own quest for liberation, and this is in contrast to the monks' emphasis on escape. Nuns describing their own awakening often emphasize the conquest aspect of liberation, whereas the terms preferred by the monks are more likely to stress attainment. So for the nuns, liberation is not divorced from conflict and struggles, but what changes is their responses. Kema's poem is one of the many in the Terigata that rec recounts her conquest of Mara. So here's an excerpt. It begins with Mara saying, You're young and beautiful, and so am I. Come, Kema. Let's enjoy each other, make music together. And then she replies, This foul body, sick, so easily broken, vexes and shames me. My craving for sex has been rooted out. The pleasures of sex are like swords and stakes. The body, senses, and the mind, just like the chopping block on which they are cut. 
what you call the delights of sexual pleasure are no delights for me now. And then later on, fools, you thought all that could be relied on, all the while not knowing what really is. But I honor the Buddha, best of all men. By doing what the Buddha taught, I am freed from all sufferings. A third difference that comes to light in comparing the two anthologies is the contrast between the nuns and the monks in their attitudes towards the human body. And we heard about this from from Shi earlier. In early Buddhism, attachment to the body is seen as a powerful obstacle to liberation. And both the Terigata and the Theragata reflect this. Both contain references to deceptively beautiful female bodies as dangerous snares of death. But here again, interesting points of comparison emerge. We see that the doctrinal emphasis on the necessity of overcoming attachment to the body is interpreted differently in the two anthologies. In the Terigata, the problem of the body is seen as attachment to self that is to be overcome by examining one's own life history and biological processes. Whereas for the monks, the problem of attachment is seen as desire for women, which is to be overcome by visualizing the impurity of women's bodies rather than their own. (laughs) The excerpt from the next poem tells the story of Suba, which uh, she talked about earlier, uh, a nun who is being courted by a handsome suitor. And her reaction is quite different than a monk's would be. Instead of condemning him and emphasizing the deceptiveness and lethal qualities of his beauty, she evokes the essential transience of all things. In this case, rather than reviling her seducer as a monk might do, this nun tries to help him appreciate the truth of impermanence. Rather than denigrating her potential rapist, she responds with assurance, compassion, and wisdom. And in so doing, she demonstrates her freedom with regard to her own body. She says to her suitor, you are really out of your mind. (laughs) What is it that you see when you look at this body, filled as it is with things that have already died, destined as it is to fall apart, only to fill a cemetery? And the rake replies, as as you mentioned, I see your eyes. They are like the eyes of a fawn. And then later on in the poem, the compilers of the scripture recount, uh, referring to Kema, then the one who was so pleasing to look at, her mind unattached, and with no regard for her eye, gouged it out and gave it to that man, saying, here, take the eye, it's yours. His sexual passion ended right there forever. <laughs> and he begged her for forgiveness. So, you know, she, she taught him. She, she changed him. Another theme that distinguishes the nun's poems from those of the monks is that of loss and grief and even madness. One account of unimaginable grief is the story of Patachara, 
As was the custom at the time, she was returning to her parents' home to give birth to her second child. A great storm came up, and while her husband was trying to build her a hut in the forest, he was bitten by a snake and he died. So she gave birth alone, and then the next morning discovered her husband's body. After a day paralyzed with grief, she continued on her journey. And then she came to a swollen river. She took the newborn across first, and then halfway back across the river to get her older child, she screamed when she saw a hawk seize the baby and carry him off. The older child, thinking that his mother was calling him, went into the river and drowned. In complete despair, having lost her husband and two children, all she could do was to resume her journey. But when she got to her hometown, she learned that just the night before, her family's house had burnt down and they all had died. And with that, she went completely mad and wandered naked from town to town and was reviled. One day, she happened upon the Buddha. His disciples wanted to keep her away, but he followed her and he said, Sister, recover your presence of mind. And she saw that she was naked and she asked for help. And then she asked to be ordained. So here uh, is the poem she wrote much later, recounting the moment of her awakening. Furrowing fields with plows, sowing seeds in the ground, taking care of wives and children, young men find wealth. So why have I not experienced freedom when I am virtuous and I do what the teacher taught, when I am not lazy and I am calm? While washing my feet, I made the water useful in another way. In concentrating on it, move from the higher ground down. Then I held back my mind, as one would do with a thoroughbred horse. And I took a lamp and went into the hut. First, I looked at the bed. Then I sat on the couch. I used a needle to pull out the lamp's wick. Just as the lamp went out, my mind was free. One of the things I find so moving about the Terigata is how often these poems stress the personal struggle of these first female disciples. As an example, here's uh, the poem of Chitta. She says, Even though I am emaciated, exhausted, and very weak, still I go on, leaning on a stick, climbing the mountain. I have thrown off my outer robe, turned my bowl over. I leaned against a rock after splitting open the mass of mental darkness. The last distinguishing theme that I'd like to share with you is how often these nuns experienced long periods of spiritual despair before they finally became completely free. For most of us, this practice is indeed a long haul. And I can't help but admire the incredible courage and determination of these women trying to deal not only with their wild minds, but with their profound discouragement as well. An example in this next poem tells the story of Siha, 
She says, Pained by distracted attention and by desire for sex, I was always disturbed without any control over my thoughts. Acting on thoughts of happiness, overcome by defiling compulsions, I had no peace of mind, controlled by a mind bent on excitement. Thin, pallid, and wan, I wandered for seven years. I did not experience happiness by day or night. Intense suffering was what I had. Taking a rope, I went into the forest, thinking, it's better to hang than to live this low life. I made the noose strong and tied it to a branch, but just as I looped it around my neck, my mind was set free. So to summarize, I have suggested here six qualities that stand out in this unique collection of women's religious literature, which is the Terigata. Vivid personal accounts of awakening, facing conflicts head-on with wisdom and compassion, their attitudes towards the body, loss, grief, and sometimes even madness, personal struggle, and forthright confessions of agonizing spiritual despair. So it would seem that the Terigato was directed towards diverse audiences. If we see these texts as didactic models for the successful quest for liberation, I feel they provide inspiring examples of overcoming sensual desire, debilitating grief, a wild mind, and even despair. And many of these examples are as relevant to practitioners today as they were over two millennia ago. Another aspect that I find intriguing is that I believe that a deeper understanding of the Terigata could make an important contribution to how we teach the Dharma today, to the pedagogy of Dharma transmission, both to uh, and from women. And finally, I would also suggest that what emerges from these texts might be seen as prophetic, in that for the monks in the Terragata, liberation is characterized by an end to conflict. On the other hand, for the nuns in this tradition, the attempt to enter the path of liberation seems to have been fraught with conflict and struggle throughout history. Thank you very much for your attention. anyone have any questions or comments? Thank you very much. I'm feeling inspired already. Thank you, Meg. I'm curious. Um, there's been a little bit of talk today about um, monks leaving families and children. Um, can you talk a little bit, um, if you would, about nuns in the Terigata who had been mothers? I think, uh, I may not have the number exactly right, but I think eight of them talk about having been mothers. And at the time, uh, it, was, it was also fairly widely accepted that uh, the right thing to do was to leave your family. Um, one of the, we also have examples of uh, a number of them having lost their children. And it was their practice 
as the Buddha taught, that enabled them to overcome their, their grief. Thank Maybe you. somebody else would like to comment on that. I would just add to my earlier comment about the voices feeling authentic. So part of that for me is I just can't imagine men making this stuff up. Maggie, you um, touched on something about um, contemporary transmission to and from uh, women teachers. I wondered if you could tease that out a little more for us. Thank you. Um, if we look at the Theragata, the monks' poems are often more abstract than the nuns' poems are in the, in the Theragata. And these two anthologies uh, have been described by uh, some scholars as liberation manuals. So they're, they're primarily didactic uh, in, in their purpose. So um, one of the things that comes across to me is how uh, important it is as, as a Dharma teacher to be authentic about who we are, you know, and to and and here we hear these nuns talk about their despair, you know, uh, they're struggling for 25 years and they still don't get it, you know, and then finally, you know, the pity drops. But um, I think it's it's uh, it's quite wonderful that we have these these examples of how these women uh, were teaching other women, and uh, earlier we were talking about um, who ordained the Darius in these poems, and many of them um, talk about their women teachers. They say, "I met a woman I could trust. I followed her teaching, and and so forth." So this the the door opener for many of these women in the Terigata. Some, for some it was the Buddha himself, but for, I think, the majority, it was other women teachers. Um, so the story of the, um, uh, the, the um, enlightenment moment that came at the noose point was very um, yeah. uh, interesting to me because so many of these like um, enlightenment stories are very um, mundane moments. Like yeah. they're usually very like yeah. um, like just watching the water or something like this. Um, do you know of any other examples of of stories um, of like these enlightenment moments that came at very stressful times or at very you know. Um, uh, yeah, other other ones that that were the kind of very because that, that that struck me as very unique. I haven't heard of a, an enlightenment story like quite like that. So thanks for sharing it. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Thank you, Meg. Um, I'm not sure if you'll have an answer for this, but as you were reading the poem um, and earlier hearing the poem about the woman going through the parts of her body, uh, the parts of her body and the changes, um, I was thinking of the Asuba practices of the uh, uh, contemplating the 32 yeah. parts of yeah. the body and wondering what you think about... Um, I think you mentioned that when women, women in the Terigata speak about their bodies as their own objects of experience, and men tend to talk about a woman's body as being tempted, tempting. Um, so do you have any thoughts about where the contemplation of the 32 parts I, I think that, I think that's very relevant, and I think the poem that she read to us from Ambapali um, is, is really beautiful because she goes into in these different parts of her body and she talks about how beautiful she was, and then sh there's this you know recurring uh, refrain at the end. You know this is this is uh, what the Buddha said, and this is just the way it is. And what comes across to me in that poem is the joy she finds in her old age. She sees herself, you know, her hair like smelling like a rabbit fur, you know. Uh, and she's just fine with that. I wonder if it's the joy in no longer being um, socially the object of someone else's desire. <laughs> but I think it's also the, the joy of seeing things as they really are. Absolutely. Of having really embraced the truth of impermanence. And not self. I think many of us can probably relate to these um, experiences of the Dharma really coming up strongly in moments of of grief or or change or realizing our aging or something like that. And I'm wondering if in your looking at both the Terigata and the Terigata, if you've if you've seen sort of it sounds like the what you've seen is the the enlightenment moment for the male monastics maybe not being brought on in the same way by this kind of grief or tragedy or struggle or realization in that sense exactly. uh, in life experience. Yeah. So how do you see the enlightenment moments for the men? Well, I, you know, in, in some ways I'm not qualified to talk about that. But, in, in terms um, of what you find yeah. in the literature. <laughs> well, what's, what's remarkable is that um, very few, you know, a minority of the monks of the Theragata talk about their own experiences of awakening. They talk about it often more as a, as a kind of abstract idea or a generalization or a, a potential, something for the future. Um, so there's a lot less of, of this concrete detail. On the other hand, if you think about uh, Zen stories, mostly from, from uh, male Zen masters, many of them have this, this quality of, of vividness and uh, connection to impermanence and loss. Maybe somebody else would like to answer that. 
Well, I have a question that may be somewhat related to, to the same area, which is we heard earlier that certain images were used when often when teaching to lay women. I think Diana talked about the use of kind of domestic imagery. And I wondered if there are images that are particular in these poems that you don't see in the men's poems as much. So now comparing men to women and if there if they you know, there are these vivid descriptions, yes, but are there particular objects that are used or aspects of life? Well, there are stock phrases in both of them, and sometimes they're the, they're the same stock phrases. So um, in, in studying the Terigata, that's the those are the poems that interest me the least, actually. And so I'm kind of, I'm kind of weeding out the stock phrase-type poems and looking at the ones that tend to be more specific, because to me they're more real. Um, uh, I think a number of them have to do with old age. You know, when when a woman um, sees herself, you know, falling apart, and you know she's trying to climb the mountain, she's leaning on her stick, and she's, you know, weak and old. That's that's a recurrent theme. Uh, another recurrent theme is um, conquering Mara, being being confronted with with temptations and having the, you know, the sang froid, the, the 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 assurance that she she really knows. Uh, where she's coming from, and she's not going to fall for any of that. But also, like it, like Grace was saying, a number of the poems are so specific that you know you you couldn't you couldn't have made it up. You know, uh, you know one of the later um, people compiling the canon, it's, it's unlikely that I, I think that it would be highly unlikely that they made up something like these. Um, so you talked about um, mother love and mother grief in the Terigata. Um, so um, how about in the Terigata, um, do you see any son's grief? or? or I, have, I haven't done that research yet, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe do you know, Grace? I didn't understand the question. Uh, we, we see a lot of um, mother love and mother grief in the Terigata, but how about the Terigata? I mean, this is something I'm going to do, but I haven't done yet. But there are lots of texts I haven't spent much time Yeah. So going back to the difference between the Terragata and the Terragata about how the men and the women uh, relate, how they got to a desire for awakening, um, um, I, I have to think that the men have just as much suffering and yeah. difficulty in life yeah. as the women do, but maybe they are less inclined to be confessional or to talk about that, even after they've reached yeah. Yeah. a supposed full enlightenment. <laughs> They're a little less willing to. That makes a lot of sense to me, yeah. <laughs> And I think the other thing that's reflected in the difference between those two texts is just, as you said, it's full, the Terragata is full of stock phrases. 
and it's much more polished, it's less personal. I think it's been through more of the passing yeah, down yeah. of the text process that tends to kind of eliminate some of those personal testimonies, um, probably because it was the dominant narrative. Yeah. This is what men are supposed to be like, and it becomes abstracted, as you've pointed out. Yeah. The translation that you're preferring, what yep. do you prefer about that translation? Oh, because it's, I mean, you may have appreciated it when I read the poems. It's, it's in English of how we talk today, you know? Okay. Even, the, even Norman's translation, which is 1971, it's, it's, it, it rings a bit dated. Okay, thank you. This one? Uh, Charles Hallisey, H-A-L-L-I-S-E-Y. Hmm? How do you find? Oh, it's uh, just going, you know, it's, it's for sale. I mean, it just came out this year, and it's, uh, it's very distinguished. It's, um, it's in the Murti Classical Library of India, Harvard University Press. So, very, hmm? Yeah, yeah, I don't like to, I don't like to pitch Amazon, but uh, anyway, it's... <laughs> yeah, it's widely available. And, you know, one of the great things about this book, which, which the others don't have, is that when you read the poems, you've got the Pali on this page and the English on this page. So you can actually see for yourself what, what the Pali text is. And since we're talking about the possible differences between the the male and female um, descriptions of these things, I was reminded of a, a monk friend of mine who was doing some translation of the the Terigata, and his 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 observation was that the monks lived differently than or the bhikkhus lived differently than the bhikkhunis did, so the women were you know more in community. Many right. of the men were wandering. You get a lot more of the appreciation of nature and the beauty and all of that in in the Terragata. And so it's, it's just another aspect of how we might see things differently and what we might emphasize differently. That's exactly right. Um, the, there are a few um, of the earliest uh, of the Buddhist female disciples who did wander like the monks uh, just uh, until somebody got raped, and then the the rule was laid down that women, you know, uh, were not. Uh, it wasn't suitable for women to go off and and meditate in the forest anymore, and so they live much more in in community. Whereas the monks still were going out and living, you know, sometimes in a hut, but sometimes just under a tree. And yes, there are, there are more nature references in the Terragata because of that. And another thing that's interesting is that there are m way more references to the importance of friendship among the bhikkhunis than among the, nun the, the, the monks. And this is also um, part of the, uh, living together in, in such a close community. So, yeah, friendship is another thread that distinguishes. Um, earlier on, yeah, um, 
you distinguished, you, you used, uh, I think you described the monks as experiencing liberation uh, as escape. You used several words. Attainment was the word, yeah. Attainment. That was, that's the idea that's stressed. Whereas for the nuns, it's more like conquest. It'd also say... Yeah, um, so so I'm, I guess um, my question was uh, if you could kind of clarify that for me um, a little bit. I mean, I, I get a different sense about the words, but um, attainment and... Um, I'm wondering about the inner quality. Yeah. Uh, if you could uh, elaborate a little bit on the distinction between the inner mental quality yeah. that um, you're talking about here uh, and uh, apart from the language, the word, which confuses me. Thank you for that. That's a good question. And I think it, it comes back to what you were saying earlier, which is this, it's, it's, I think it's likely that the, the monks experienced spiritual despair as well. But I think when they start talking about their experience of awakening, they're talking about it from a different starting point, from a later starting point. You know, they're kind of in smooth sailing already, and then, you know, this is their attainment. And, you know, they may be less inclined to, to talk about their struggles and their difficulties. I, I'm wondering, um, so I've read a book, I don't know how accurate it is, I can't read Polly, and, and it's translated the, uh, by Karen Armstrong, uh, that I'm sure many people here are familiar with, and she's kind of digested this for me, um, uh, and I have no way to measure it. But it seemed as though, during the, the Buddhist times, it was quite um, almost expected for men, at some point, to give up the household life and become uh, wanderers, seekers. And I'm relating this to the point you're making. Mm. And I'm just wondering, if that were the case, and not the case for women, wouldn't it require some kind of very traumatic experience in their life to get them to actually move on from the household life? Is, is there some distinction there? to be made. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I know the answer to that. But, you know, in, in, uh, in Thailand today, I mean, it's, it's quite customary for um, young men to spend time in the monastery as part of their growing up process. And then, then later on, they become householders. We have time for a brief commentary on that. I think uh, it's, it's more the case that it would be more socially acceptable for men to, to go forth and less socially acceptable for women to go forth. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the, the, um, the heart's movement to live a renunciant life is, is kind of irrelevant what body you're, you happen to be in, whether it's male or female or, or somewhere in between. It's the, it's the heart's response. And, you know, if you're, if you're male and you have that calling to renounce, it's quite, you know, there's a lot of opportunities and it's, you know, it's not like it's easy, but it's, it's not difficult to step into that kind of way of living. I think also in India at that time, it's, it was very, as it still is now, it's very common to see uh, sadhus or renunciants living. It's part of society, it's a normal part of society. But for women who, especially at that time, were, were owned by a man, belonged to a man in some way, it's, it was a, quite a kind of shocking thing to do. So 
Yeah. I don't think it's that, that women have to have some traumatic experience before they want to go forth. I, you know, I, for me, certainly that wasn't the case. It was a, a heart's calling, and I think that's true for, for many women. But then what receives you is something very different. How you're received into that going forth is very different if you're male or if you're female. Or if you're somewhere in between, it's even more challenging. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. <coughs> Thank you very much, Meg.